WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear In the Reign of Herod IV by Stephen Milhauser. He yearned for a world so small that he could not yet imagine it. The story was chosen by Cynthia Ozick, who has been publishing stories, memoirs, and critical pieces in the magazine since the 1970s. She has written many volumes of short fiction, and her novels include Heir to the Glimmering World and, most recently, Foreign Bodies. She joins me in the office. Hi, Cynthia. Hello. Hi. So I think Stephen Milhauser was the, the first and only writer that you thought of when we talked about doing a podcast. Yes, uh, it occurred to me instantly. You had given me a variety of stories to think about by him, and I could not remember, though it was indelible, I could not remember the title. But the minute I found the story, I knew this was it. It's one of the great, great stories. When did you first start reading Milhauser? I think in whatever was published in The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. That was my introduction. Quite often, Milhauser's compared to writers like Borges and Calvino because of this somewhat fairy tale, fantastical quality mm -hmm. to his work. Do you think it's useful to think of those writers when thinking about this story? Yes, absolutely. There's the folktale quality. It's as if he's a maker of myth. He drills down so, so deeply into the elemental part of human consciousness that uh, one is left gasping. It's a little bit hard to talk about this story without giving too much away, but I'll just say it's set in a, in a king's palace and it revolves around a craftsman who, who makes miniatures for the king. Is there anything that you think listeners should be aware of before they hear the story? They should be thinking about art, all art. They should be thinking about making things. They should be thinking about craft. They should be thinking about the first time when they were very small and they held a crayon and drew a house or a child. And they should be thinking about their fingers. That's wonderful. I hope they can keep that all in mind. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Cynthia Ozick reading Stephen Milhauser's story in the reign of Herod IV. In the reign of Herod IV, there lived at court a maker of miniatures who was celebrated for the uncanny perfection of his work. Not only were the objects of his strenuous art pleasing to look at, but the pleasure and astonishment increased as the observer, bending closer, saw that a passionate care had been lavished on the smallest and least visible details. It was said that no matter how closely you examined one of the master's little pieces, you always discovered some further wonder. Among the many tasks of the maker of miniatures was supplying court ladies with carved ivory plants and triple-headed sea monsters for their cabinets of delight, drawing the fur and feathers of fabulous creatures in the Book of Three Hundred Secrets and 
above all, replacing the furnishings of the old toy palace which the king had inherited from his father and which was filled with moldering draperies and cracked wood. The famous toy palace, with its more than six hundred rooms, its dungeons and secret passageways, its gardens and courtyards and orchards, rose to the height of a man's chest and occupied its own chamber across from the king's library. In return for his duties, the maker of miniatures was given a private apartment in the palace, not far from the court carpenter, as well as an ermine robe that entitled him to take part in official ceremonies. He was assisted by two youthful apprentices. They roughed out the larger miniatures, such as cupboards and canopy beds, fired the little earthenware bowls in a special kiln, applied the first coat of lacquer to objects made of wood, and saved precious time for the master by fetching from the palace workshops pieces of ivory, copper, lapis, boxwood, and beechwood. But the apprentices were not permitted to attempt the more difficult labors of the miniaturist's art, such as carving the dragon heads at the feet of table legs, or forging the minuscule copper keys that turned the locks of drawers and chests. One day, after the completion of an arduous and exhilarating task, he had made for one of the miniature orchards a basket of brilliantly lifelike red and green apples, each no larger than the pit of a cherry, and as a finishing touch, he had placed on the stem of one apple a perfectly reproduced copper fly. The maker of miniatures felt in himself the stirring of restlessness. It wasn't the first time he had experienced such stirrings at the end of a long task, but lately the odd internal itching had become more insistent. As he tried to penetrate the feeling, to reveal it more clearly to himself, he thought of the basket of apples. The basket had been unusually satisfying to make because it had presented him with a hierarchy of sizes. The basket itself, composed of separate slats of boxwood bound with copper wire, then the apples, and, at last, the fly. The tiny fly, with its precisely rendered wings, had caused him the most difficulty and the most joy, and it occurred to him that there was no particular reason to stop at the fly. Suddenly, he was seized by an inner trembling. Why had he never thought of this before? How was it possible? Didn't logic itself demand that the downward series be pursued? At this thought, he felt a deep, guilty excitement, as if he had come to a forbidden door at the end of a private corridor and heard, as he slowly turned the key, a sound of distant music. He set out to make an apple basket the size of one of his apples, the new wooden apples, each with a stem and two leaves, were so small that he was able to carve them only with the aid of an enlarging glass, which he set into a supporting frame. But even as he struggled pleasurably over each apple, 
he realized that he was dreaming of the fly, the impossible fly that, as it turned out, was visible only as a speck on the minuscule stem, though it was perfect in every detail when viewed through the glass. The king, who had praised the original fly, looked at the new basket of apples with astonished delight. When the master invited him to observe the apples through the glass, the king drew in his breath, appeared to be about to speak, and suddenly clapped his hands sharply, whereupon the chamberlain strode in. The king instructed him to view the miniature fly through the lens. The chamberlain, a cold and imperious man, gave a harsh gasp. By the next morning, the story of the invisible fly was known throughout the palace. With new zest, as if he were returning to an earlier and more exuberant period of his life, the middle-aged but still vigorous master devoted himself to a series of miniatures that in every way surpassed his finest efforts of the past. From the pit of a cherry, he carved a ring of thirty-six elephants, each holding in its trunk the tail of the elephant before it. Every elephant possessed a pair of nearly invisible tusks carved out of ivory. One day, the master presented to the king a saucer on which stood an inverted ebony thimble. When the king picked up the thimble, he discovered beneath it a meticulous reproduction of the northwest wing of his toy palace, with twenty-six rooms fully furnished, including a writing table with ostrich claw legs and a gold birdcage containing a nightingale. Scarcely had the maker of miniatures completed the thimble palace when he felt a new burst of restlessness. Once embarked on his downward voyage, would he ever be able to stop? Besides, wasn't it plain that the tiny palace, though but partially visible to the unaided eye, revealed itself too readily without that resistance which was an essential part of aesthetic delight. And he proposed to himself a plunge beneath the surface of the visible, the creation of a detailed world wholly inaccessible to the naked eye. He began with simple things, a copper bowl, a beechwood box, for the material he worked with was, before magnification, itself invisible and required of him a new degree of delicate manipulation. He quickly recognized the need for more powerful lenses, more subtle tools. From the court carpenter, he ordered a pair of complex gripping devices that held his hands still and steadied his fingers. This was no work for an old man, he thought, no, or for a young man either, but only for someone in the full vigor of his middle years. His first masterpiece in the realm of the invisible was a stag with branching antlers. Through a powerful glass, he watched the invisible sharpen into the visible, the head twisted to one side, the mouth slightly open, the lips drawn back to reveal the teeth. 
He carved it and painted it down to the last detail, tooth and hoof and pale inner ear. And it was said by some that if you looked very closely through the enlarging glass, you could distinguish the amber irises from the bright black pupils. No sooner had he finished the stag than he embarked on a far more challenging task. An invisible garden, modeled at first on one of the 39 palace gardens, but quickly developing its own more elaborate design. During the early stages, a sudden draft destroyed a week's worth of work. With the aid of the court carpenter for whom he drew up a plan, the maker of miniatures constructed a teakwood box with a sloping top in which was set a square magnifying lens. Two panels in the sides of the box slid smoothly up and down so that a pair of hands might be inserted, and the square lens attached to a system of rods and screws could be raised and lowered. The intricate and delicate garden, protected from disturbing currents of air, grew slowly until it contained dozens of twelve-sided flower beds, fourteen varieties of fruit tree with individual leaves, a system of crossing paths paved with tesserae of ebony and ivory, onyx fountains carved with legendary creatures, snails under stones. Although the king expressed wonder and amazement at the garden seen through the glass and praised the master's conquest of a new world, he asked many questions about the lens and the teakwood box, as if he suspected them of working a spell. At last the king permitted himself to wonder whether his maker of miniatures might not soon return to the visible miracle of his exquisite palace furniture. In the king's voice, the master heard a tone of unmistakable reproach. As he explained the apparatus and adjusted the lens, it seemed to him that by venturing beyond the visible world, he had embarked on a voyage more perilous than he had known. But already he had thrown himself into the crowning masterpiece of this period, the king's famous toy palace, entirely invisible to the naked eye. The more than six hundred rooms would be completely furnished and scrupulously rendered in every detail, including dovetail joints in the cabinets, working locks on the drawers, and fifteen dozen complete sets of knives, forks, and spoons in chased silver, each with a royal insignia, a crown, and crossed swords worked onto the handle. During the construction of his palace beneath the glass, the maker of miniatures paid several visits to the original toy palace and was startled each time by the vast building that towered almost to the height of his shoulders. The chairs in the council chamber were the size of his fists. Ever since his own work had taken its slight and necessary turn, its odd, unaccountable swerve away from classic smallness toward another, more dubious realm, his two apprentices had assumed the task of supplying furniture for the king's toy palace. And the master saw that it was good. They were well suited to large and striking effects. 
he had perhaps been unduly harsh in limiting them to elementary tasks in the days when such things concerned him. One day, while looking at a desk in the king's toy palace, the maker of miniatures fell into a reverie. Fastened to the drawer of the desk was a pair of brass lion's head handles, which had once seemed to him the height of elegance and had cost him three days of work. The smallest object in the toy palace was a silver needle no thicker than a hair. It occurred to him, not without pride, that the entire palace he was now constructing beneath his glass, with its more than six hundred rooms and its gardens and orchards, could be enclosed by the eye of that needle. But even as he sank deeply into his little world, he felt at the back of his mind a slight itching, as if he knew that his palace, even that, could not satisfy him for long. For such a feat, however arduous, was really no more than the further conquest of a familiar realm— the twilight realm of the world revealed by his glass, and he yearned for a world so small that he could not yet imagine it. As he worked on his palace, the craving grew in him, and he seemed to sense dimly, just out of reach beyond his inner sight, a farther kingdom. He began to see it more clearly, with growing excitement, though he confessed to himself that it was less a seeing than a desire gradually hardening into a certainty. Although he now worked with materials so minute that it was invisible to the unaided eye, it remained true that the invisible was made visible by his lens. If to others he seemed a magician who brought the seen out of the unseen, in fact, he worked wholly in the visible world. It was an ambiguous and elusive world, which vanished into the invisible as soon as the glass was removed, and yet it was a far cry from the purely invisible realm he sensed just beyond, and he longed to construct objects so small that they would escape the power of the mediating glass remain submerged in the dark kingdom of the invisible. He began, as always, with a simple object, an oblong ivory box with a sliding top. Although the box was so marvelously small that it remained invisible even through the glass, he continued to make use of his teakwood viewer with the sloping top and movable lens, for the familiar apparatus served to concentrate his attention and steady his fingers. The ivory box, which never once emerged from its hidden world to reveal itself to the eye of the master, was completed in seven days. With his inner eye, he contemplated it coolly and felt a calm elation. Despite the absence of visible evidence, he was certain of its formal perfection, of the elegant precision of its parts. Never had he taken so much care. Immediately he threw himself into a more ambitious task, a beechwood peacock, with outspread tail. 
the enchanting peacock, radiant with unseen colors, took him nearly three weeks, and when he was done, he felt ready for the task he had secretly been preparing for, an imaginary kingdom. And so he set to work on his invisible kingdom, with its walled cities and winding rivers, its forests of beech and fir, its copper mines and temple towers, its spoons and insects. By the end of a year, he had completed a single city. The city contained cobbled streets and market squares, baskets of grapes on the fruit cellars' stands, merchants' houses with pillared balconies overlooking courtyards, individual bottles in the glassblowers' shops. He felt tired and exhilarated, and as he imagined all that remained undone, stretching out before him, like an immense adventure, he found himself wishing that he could reveal his work to someone as he had once been able to do. The solitude of his task was never oppressive, but from time to time, in the pauses of his day, he felt a touch of loneliness. The king no longer summoned him, and his apprentices had moved into an adjoining chamber and taken on apprentices of their own. One afternoon, when he was deep sunk in his invisible kingdom, there was a rap at the door of his chamber. Half raising his head from the teakwood box, the maker of miniatures called for the visitor to enter. The door opened to admit two of the four new apprentices. They began by apologizing for disturbing the master at work, but explained that they had long admired his unsurpassed art and could not resist the desire to pay their respects and to beg for news of his latest work, of which they had heard confused and contradictory reports. Their own work was still crude and trifling, they had scarcely the skill with which to fashion the leg of a table, and they hoped that a visit to the master would instruct and inspire them. The master knew at once that the apprentices, who were both quite young, were very sure of themselves and were belittling themselves only out of courtly politeness, but the loneliness of his last months was soothed by their words of homage. Giving way to temptation, he moved aside to permit them to view his kingdom through the glass. True, they would be able to see nothing, for he had dropped fully beneath the floor of the visible. But perhaps they could somehow sense as he could in the darkest depths of his mind, the splendor and precision of his invisible art. The first apprentice bent over the glass in the sloping top of the teakwood box. After a few moments, he stepped aside and allowed the second apprentice to bend over the glass. When both had done looking, the younger of the two said, that the master's work was indeed incomparable. Never in his short life had he seen anything so remarkable in both conception and execution. At once, the second apprentice gave voice to his admiration, saying that even in his dreams he had not dared to imagine such loveliness. And indeed, 
It was the highest of all honors simply to be in the presence of so great an accomplishment. Then the two apprentices thanked the master for dignifying them with his attention and respectfully took their leave. The maker of miniatures, knowing that they had seen nothing, that their words were hollow, and that they would never visit him again, returned with some impatience to his work, and as he sank below the crust of the visible world into his dazzling kingdom, he understood that he had traveled a long way from the early days, that he still had far to go, and that from now on his life would be difficult and without forgiveness. That was Cynthia Ozick reading in The Reign of Herod IV, which was first published in the magazine in 2006 and included in Stephen Milhauser's collection Dangerous Laughter, published by Vintage. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin, too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com festival. Again, that's newyorker.com festival. See you there. So, Cynthia, when we originally talked about this story, you wrote in an email to me, was there ever a tale more about the making of art and the dream of perfection than this? Is this a story about a man who makes miniature replicas of real things, or is it a story about writing? I think it's a story about uh, writing, yes. It's a story about the making of art in general, no matter what the art is, because the theme, though there are many entangled themes here, but the theme is the drive to perfection. And I suppose that it can never be attained, except in this story it is attained and no one can see it. It could also be a story about a writer who perfects his art in his mind and remains obscure. Well, if, if you are producing art that no audience can see or appreciate, is it still art? It's the sound of one hand clapping. Mm-hmm. Is there still something there that's valid? Well, if I can just give an analogy to a story that this reminds me of, not at all in its execution, but somewhat in its conception. The Madonna of the Future is a tale by Henry James in which a painter has a dream of painting the perfect Madonna, and he has found the model, but he can never begin because he is not yet up to the ability to create the perfection that's in his mind, and his model grows older and older and older, and he never paints the picture, but it exists in his mind below the crust of visibility. Mm -hmm. So it's quite analogous to this story, and both of them deal with the hope, the dream, the drive, the illusion of not merely perfection, but perfectibility. 
the ability to arrive at perfection. Now, of course, the, the Henry James painting exists only in the mind of the painter. Right. So it dies with him. Do you think there actually is anything there in the miniaturist's final work? I think we know, we're almost told that it is only in his mind because he himself cannot see it. He himself cannot see it. So he is living, like the painter, in an illusion of perfection. But the last word about he would live without forgiveness seems to give some kind of wash beyond the aesthetic into the moral. And I'm not certain how that fits, but that last word seems very telling, but also enigmatic, and I haven't figured it out, nor do I think I ever will. Why is it that he is in need of forgiveness? Forgiveness is a moral word. Mm -hmm. It comes with Mm -hmm. guilt. And why does the artist feel guilty about not achieving perfection, and then why, therefore, does he need to be forgiven. Do you think it's it's guilt over not achieving perfection, or do you think it's guilt over ignoring his audience, having left his audience mm. behind? Of course, he has lost his audience, but also we're told that he really does not need his audience, that being his own receiver seems to be sufficient for him. Uh, this is kind of a grandiose word for what I'm struggling to get at. I wonder if there isn't something sacerdotal in the meaning of perfection. I mean, who or what is perfect? Nothing on the face of the earth, but our projection of the dream of the divine is perfected. So if you cannot achieve the divine, should you feel guilty? And should you require forgiveness? There's a mixture in this story between the aesthetic and, in some ways, the God-like, because he has set himself apart from ordinary humanity and made himself into a kind of God, almost Mm -hmm. a God for himself. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I think you and I read that last paragraph quite differently. For me, because it comes after these two apprentices coming in, and sort of humoring him and clearly thinking that he's mad mm-hmm. and, and going away again. He feels his life will be difficult and without forgiveness because no one will understand him. Ultimately, his construction of this completely invisible palace is a selfish act mm. because he is the only person who can take pleasure from it. Mm. Interesting. Yes. Um, okay, you're opening new vistas <laughs> for me, um, which were heretofore invisible. <laughs> A selfish act. So from that point of view, the apprentices are correct, and the emperor has no clothes, mm-hmm. and he is selfish, foolish, a self-idolator, perhaps. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for a writer who reads this story, who's very young, who's 
driven to write a masterpiece as all young writers are. No, no young writer believes he or she is um, striving to be a me- mediocrity. Mm-hmm. So what does this mean if you're a young writer and you read this story and you're very much concerned with audience, with readership? What does it tell you? What mm-hmm. does it tell mm-hmm. you? Well, his, the maker of miniatures assignment in life is to provide entertainment for the king. And he does this at first, and the king's fascinated, and then he fails to do it. And mm-hmm. he's pushed aside, and other people are brought in and, and take over his role and do it quite well. So at the end, perhaps, you know, it's a difficult life he's chosen. It's one without forgiveness. It's one in which he is not giving pleasure to others. And perhaps a writer of a complicated masterpiece that is not received well in his lifetime mm-hmm. or her lifetime uh, is in that position. But then there's another question, which is sort of the the tail wagging this other point of view. Should the point of great art, because the miniaturist is a great artist, should the point of great art be to satisfy, to entertain, to give pleasure? Or does it have another standalone, subterranean purpose? For instance, Kafka. Does Kafka give us pleasure? Or think about James Joyce, whom you could call a mad miniaturist. Mm -hmm. Um, The first great volume, Ulysses, the king could see it and might get pleasure from it. The second one, Finnegan's Wake, is pretty damn invisible. I mean, who who has really (laughs) read every single convoluted, made-up, remarkable, amazing, crafted, miniaturist-type word of Finnegan's Wake. Has anybody on the face of the earth ever achieved that? I'm sure a few scholars have. A few scholars. (laughs) (laughs) Um, With very powerful microscopes. Exactly. (laughs) But not a normal reader. So it requires somebody who can see below the crust of the visible to go into Finnegan's Wake. So what was Joyce doing? He was not entertaining. But do you think that Joyce's masterpiece was Finnegan's Wake or Ulysses? Ah, (laughs) I think because one I was able to read from cover to cover and the other one I wasn't, then I have to say Ulysses. But what did Joyce think? Right, right. What did Joyce think? Um, Why did he say that uh, he didn't care if it lasted for 10,000 years and was unread as long as it was there? mm -hmm. I had one other thought when reading this. You know, when when I read this story, I feel this sense of, of impossibility. This is not possible. He could not possibly be constructing materials this <laughs> small. And it's sort of an overwhelming sense of frustration. While reading the story, it makes you uncomfortable because you, you can't imagine how it's possible. And then I stop to think I have a, a sister who's a molecular biologist oh. <laughs> who dissects the eyes of embryo fruit flies with a needle that she can only see under a microscope. And I wonder if on some level, perhaps, and it's a bit of a stretch maybe, Milhauser is thinking of the things that make up everything we see and everything we know, but are too small for us to see, DNA cells, mm-hmm. the sort of building blocks of life, which are part of a dark kingdom to us. They are invisible to mm-hmm. us. That also occurred to me that you could say that this is a, also a story about the art of science, which mm-hmm. uh, goes into literally the realm of the invisible. And 
also, when you think sort of pragmatically, it's quite impossible. I mean, the tiny fly and then below the fly and below the fly and below. But when we read fairy tales, wonderful, impossible things happen. But they rejoice us. I don't think they perplex us when we're reading fairy tales because we know it's a fairy tale and we're prepared Mm -hmm. for that. Except, I think, when you're a child, first beginning to read fairy tales and you're unprepared. And then then you, in a way, believe in miracle as a reader, as a child reader. And if you don't believe in, in the impossible as a child reader, I guess you'll grow up to be an accountant. And your life, <laughs> your life will be difficult and without forgiveness. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cynthia. Thank you. Cynthia Ozick's latest book is Foreign Bodies, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Look for a new story by Stephen Milhauser in the January 3rd issue of the magazine. You can hear authors read their own stories in the iPad edition of the magazine, which you can find in the App Store. You can subscribe to this podcast and download previous episodes in the iTunes Store. Just do a search for New Yorker. And let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.